And so you asked me what it's like in the Phoenix Islands. Yeah. I, I mean, I say to you, what depth, my friend? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's amazing at yeah. all levels. And it's yeah. at every level, it just takes my breath away to see so much nature and no signs of humanity. Really, no trash, no debris, no... I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, hello, everyone. Today, my guest is Dr. Randy Rochen. You know, you and I work together at the New England Aquarium. And now you've moved on, and I've also moved on. And I know you've got a stellar academic background with... Uh, Thanks. You know, all the accolades, all the degrees, all the PhDs and the and the DDDs and the alphabet, and soup. The alphabet <laughs> soup, yeah, all that stuff <laughs> behind, your, behind your name. And uh, and you've been associated with Harvard and Boston, and you're now a professor at Boston University and all these, these wonderful things. But you know what I saw in you when I first met you was uh, a fire in your eye, you know, you, <laughs> and a passion for nature and science. That's what I loved about you, too. You, science was like yeah. your your thing, right? And and I, I mean, I like science too. I'm a scientist and everything, but I, I, I have to say I'm not as an adherent uh, follower as you of it as the guiding light. I'd like to uh, start this off with a quote, actually, from someone who was important to me, Jacques Cousteau. He says, what is a scientist after all? It made me think of you. And he says, it is a curious, he said, man, but I'm going to insert woman. It is a curious woman looking through the keyhole of nature, trying to know what is going on. I love that. <laughs> I'm going to have to write that down. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I like the keyhole because it really is, we were, we're pretty restricted in our view, but we're looking into this other universe, right? And, yeah. And it's how good are you at looking through that keyhole. And you're really good at that. And you, Thank you. You, uh, you adhere to the you know, highest scientific standards, but you have the passion that, that, that drives you. You know, I know you, but our listeners all don't know you. So could you just, like, tell me how you describe yourself? For, for the world, your profession, where are you from, a little bit of person, you know, personal background and, and all that. Yeah, yeah, sure. And then I actually want to revisit your keyhole of science thing. Right, I have an right. idea on that too. Okay. But I, uh, so for the record, I am a faculty member at Boston University and I have a joint appointment with biology in the Boston University Marine Program. Um, I'm from New York, but I'm from New York. Is, New York. <laughs> but this is part of the key that's kind of interesting. I'm not from New York City and I'm not from upstate. I'm from like, just about 20 minutes north of the GW Bridge and just about 20 minutes south of the Appalachian Trail. So I grew up at a place where you could be in literally one of the epicenters, right, of humanity and, and then also be in the middle of the woods. And oh, I really. Like E.O. Wilson was the same. He was a New, York, New Yorker who found his nature nearby too, but go on, yeah. Yeah, and so, I don't know, I city mass, country mass, I fit both places, and okay. it's been really formative part of who I am is to be able to work in both worlds. And what was it about the ocean? I mean, it, you know, we're, you and I are like ocean people, right? And <laughs> what, what, it was usually like a first experience or something that drew you into the ocean. I mean, you're not a bank manager, you know, you're not a, you're not a, you're not a taxi driver. You're not. There's nothing wrong with those professions. No, They're no. wonderful. But but you were driven by passion uh, for for a subject area, and it's the ocean. What was it that? What was your first memory, or what what drew you there? Oh, you know, I don't know. My parents were great. They um, took us all over the place, and you know, oceans, forests, mountains, desert, all of it. And uh, I knew I loved nature, like you said, but I I didn't know which ecosystems I really wanted to play in. I really loved them all. Um, but I really, really sort of found. Um, the ocean as a potential vocation when I went out to Shoals Marine Lab for the first time, oh, which was okay. a pretty cool place yeah, to I know work. Shoals, yeah. yeah, have you been yeah. out there? Yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful ocean habitat. Is that the, yeah. that island that comes out of the deep ocean and there's a lot of shoals around it, a lot of whales and, and herring and stuff. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's it, there's a really neat marine lab out there that's kind mm -hmm. of co-owned by UNH and Cornell, and um, they take students out, undergraduate students out, and it's just a really special place to discover the ocean because you're out there 
um, immersed in it and in nature all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're basically living in a seagull colony um, and <laughs> you know, at the mercy of the wind and the yeah. weather and the tides, yeah. and you just sort of find your way. And it's all right there, so you can explore everything. And yeah. it's a perfect entree for, um, what it was for me. What else was there that got you into the ocean? Give me the real story. All right, the real story goes like this. I loved biology, but didn't know what I wanted to work on. And yeah. actually, I originally started off college thinking I would be a communications or an English major um, and shifted to science pretty, I took a serious pivot it um, when I started taking general studies courses. But I went all the way through college. I went to Cornell and I still didn't know what I wanted to study. And so I took two years off and worked as a technician in a plant genetics department um, working with Arabidopsis, which is kind of a model organism. And uh, I went to the library, that old-fashioned thing, that library. Yeah. You actually had I love libraries. Paper yeah. and journals. And I would just read a lot because I, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school and I knew I loved biology and I knew I was destined for a career in research but I didn't know, I couldn't focus. And um, I just read and kept a little notebook. I still do this, I'm a, like a really hardcore no notebook kind of kid and um, I just kept track of what I was reading and um, just would flip through stuff and if I read more than the title I would write it down and who wrote it and um, if I read the whole paper I would take some notes on it and after a couple of months of just reading whenever I had a few extra minutes um, I kind of flipped through the notebook and watched and kind of looked at my own pattern and realized that I, it stuff. was all ocean stuff um, with very little exception um, and I just wrote to the people whose papers I'd read the most of and said like to be your graduate student and I applied there and that's mm -hmm. how I did it. And who was the person that? I went with Sarah Lewis who was perfect for me and oh. we're still so close. She's at Tufts and um, she's really famous now for her um, work in fireflies. Uh, she is studies sexual selection in insects and she worked on fireflies and flower beetles but she got her start out in Caribou Key in Belize looking at ocean herbivory. And so she, like me, had general interests um, and was broadly trained and had some insect background. And uh, I was so lucky to have her as a mentor. I was a happy graduate student and I, um, she was able to sort of really think about ideas and hypotheses and theory and then this bring in the system as part of it. But and she's a good natural historian. and. I, so I ended up with the ocean by looking at my own patterns, and I found the perfect mentor. And then people, yeah, yeah it's always about person. people in the end. Yeah. People that that steer you, and mentors. You know, yeah. I had very, very, very lucky to have three or four great mentors yeah. in my career. Mentors are so important. Yeah. Yeah. And she, you know, it's interesting. I haven't thought about it until the, right this minute. But the book that she's writing and the TED talk that she recently gave are all about wonder. And so I think that she has also helped instill a little bit of this spark of keeping keeping the creative and keeping sort of the the wonder alive. And I, that's certainly a part of all that we've been talking about today. And we just haven't put a name on it, but there it is. And I did my undergraduate thesis on honeybees. Did you know that? No, I didn't. I still keep bees today. That's good. I that like that. Cool. I love bees. Well, they're colonial well, organisms. Just well, like no, worlds. I don't like the bees. I mean, I like bees. <laughs> don't get me wrong. But, no, but I like the lateral nature of your background. I like people that have a variety of things because, you know, when you bring... Uh, a, a rich, diverse background to your profession. I, I feel like you're you're actually a, a more effective scientist. I mean, I remember when I was when I was in uh, graduate school, I was trying to decide whether to do calculus-based statistics or algebra-based statistics, or you know which one to do. And my professor sat me down. He said, he said Stone. He said, What do you know about Brahms? <laughs> what? <laughs> and I said, Brahms? Why not much? And he said, Forget about that stuff. Study Brahms. <laughs> And it was a message to me about, you know, breadth. being a breadth of knowledge in your background, whether it's cultural or, or not. But so, so you started out with honeybees. I did. Wow. Okay. Social insects are amazing and they're really fascinating. A fascinating yeah. system. Um, I love honey. Who doesn't? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I had the right mentor. So I worked with Tom Seeley and Nick Calderon, who were both giants of their field. And it was just a great opportunity to kind of get in and sort of really think about 
uh, and be trained classically in terms of how to think about science, uh. how to think about questions, how to approach behavior, how to link oh, behavior with ecology. Kind of explains you a little bit now. Okay. Yeah, and so it was just a good way to sort of think about being a scientist. And this is advice that I give to students all the time now. You know, when people want to get into ocean science. Yeah, I get that question a lot too. What, time, what do you right? say? What do I you say? I always say it's sort of. You can get to the ocean in a million different ways, but you know, science has a process that's pretty, pretty well scripted at this point. And so, just be a great scientist, and you yeah. can study anything from slime molds to trees to honeybees. But just be like, learn how to really think and really put a good experiment together. And, and thinking about that keyhole of science, I always think about science as having a conversation with nature, and yeah. she doesn't like to reveal her secrets. So you have to figure out how to be a good scientist. You have to ask the question in exactly the right way so that she's willing to give you an answer. And then, of course, you have another question. And you, that's the whole thing is you're going back and forth and back and forth. And so you know, as soon as you train to be a good scientist, then you can move to any system and do well, I think. Yeah, you know, I get another quote I love. It's uh, from a 19th century poet, but it was applied to the deep sea. And he called it a world of wonder where creation seems no more the work of nature but her dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I, you're full of great quotes yeah, today. Yeah, I love anyway, yeah, <laughs> I, I had to stay with that for a second. But, but you know, when people come to me, and I get a lot of young people coming and saying, you know, hey, you do ocean exploration science. I want to do what you do. And they ask me what it is they need to do. I have a, kind of a trick question I ask them. I always say, oh, okay, that's great. I said, uh, have you thought about doing anything else? Oh, that's a good way to put it. And if they say, yeah, I've thought about being a doctor, an architect, or whatever, I always say, do that. It's a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> but if they say, no, I've only thought about the ocean, I've only thought about the kind of things that you do, it's been my sole focus, I say, you're going to be just fine. Because that's what it takes. It takes the kind of passion that you have, the kind of round-the-clock attention, you never let it go, you know, whether you're diving obsessive. or whether you're on the, <laughs> yeah, whether you're obsessive, on the, you're the, on the other end of a teleconference line, uh, studying the deep sea, or whether you're teaching, or whatever it is, it really takes that all in. And it's happiness, too. I would say happiness is a very good compass. You know, if you find your happiness, that is really, you know, you will find success. What brought us together, Randy, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show today is, uh, what was it, about 10 years ago? Was that what it was when we first? We met in 2008. Yeah, 2000, exactly. Ten, happy 10-year ten, ten anniversary. 10 Greg. years ago. <laughs> 10 years ago, I had about six or seven years into this project in the South Pacific called the Phoenix Islands Protected Area. Yeah. Very close to my heart. And I saw your energy. I saw the light inside you, and I wanted you involved in this project. And I, I went to you and I, I, tr I explained it. You were so busy with other things, you kind of you kind of said, "Well, uh, maybe I don't know." You <laughs> said, <laughs> and and uh, I think, and I'd like to know. It was kind of interesting because you now you have just like you, you're so you're showing such spectacular leadership and such spectacular science in the Phoenix Islands Protected Area, which is located in the Central Pacific Ocean, and it's been described as the most important act in the history of marine conservation. And I'd like to ask you, why is that? I could give you lots of answers, but the best answer is sitting right in front of me, Greg. I mean, it's you. You well, you definitely created a really incredible um, conservation context for this place, and that's a story that we should we should definitely tell. But I think the reason it's going to go down in the history books is because it it was one of the first. It was the first of its kind. So prior to the inception of Pippa, right? Right. Um, right. It, there was the Great Barrier Reef in the late '70s, which was sort of the first large marine protected area, but the Great Barrier Reef and the GBR, I mean, it's awesome, but it, it wasn't fully closed, and it was coastal. You know, when it was it, first created, it was not, nothing, nothing was closed. I mean, that's Did the thing, that? right? Marine protected areas yeah. are, have all kinds and of today, different shades of gray. Today, yeah. only 33% of it is close to human activity. The other 70, 
Yeah. Odd percent is uh, open to various forms, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Again, it's coastal off the con you know off the continent of Australia, and it's owned by a developed, developed country. Developed, <laughs> well, well resourced well, country. Well resourced yeah. country, exactly. And so the Phoenix Islands protected area was grand in many scales, right? Grand in size, grand in vision, grand in strategy, and grand because it was put together by a, a much less well resourced country um, who wanted to give their what they call it their gift to humanity, which yeah. is really a I mean, just an incredible turn of phrase for um, the Republic of Kiribati, who owns right. and operates this marine protected area, to have put forth such an incredible gesture um, and gift to themselves as well, right? Where they can actually protect their own marine resources and really sort of catalyze marine conservation in the ocean. That was the vision, yep. as you well know. And they think the thing that will make it go down in history is that it didn't just remain a vision, that actually happened. Right. So, you know, that marine protected area came online, and then within seconds, it was Papahanaumokuakea, right? Where they were yeah. neck yep. and neck with That's the US right. government under right. President. Bush's leadership. Right. And then afterwards, it was just a cascade of large marine protected areas. It began that movement. Yeah. Of, I mean, you look around the world today, and there's quite a few marine protected areas of scale, and it seems normal now. But back then, it, it was not normal. It was completely it, it was, revolutionary. It was a brand new idea, and, the, and it was such a new idea that there were actually a lot of critics of it at the time, actually. Yeah, I remember They didn't that. think it could be pulled off, and this and that, and, and they were proved wrong in the end. But um, it was Daniel Pauly that said it was the most important act in the history of marine conservation. And I asked him about that once. I said, Daniel, why did you, why did you say that? Because I was really curious. And he said, well, Greg, it's a couple things. He said it's uh, because it was a very heavily fished area. It's where most of the tuna in the world comes from that central part of the yeah. Pacific Ocean. So you were actually giving a place in the ocean that's highly productive a rest. And that had never that had never been done before. I know that's you know, amazing. It had never been done before. And then he pointed something out to me, which I hadn't thought about. And he said, "And Greg, think of all the bycatch that's not being taken in there." Oh yeah. And that really got me. I said, "You're right. This is thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of birds and turtles and dolphins and and other kinds of fish and, and marine species that get caught in an inadvertently in a fishing operation, and suddenly in this big area they weren't." And then I started thinking about it, and I kind of closed my eyes. And I realized this is an area the size of California. Yeah, it's huge. huge. It's deep, and had been loaded with fishing boats for decades. You know, engines, noise engines, making noise in the water, lots of nets in the water, fish, everything being taken out. And then suddenly, whew, quiet. You know, it's not just bycatch, right? It's the side effects of all that action and all. That. Yeah. Nobody ever talks about ocean side effects, or at least I don't hear that all the time. But no. it's true. It's a sound. Well, sound's becoming more of an issue. I know, but more, there's no yeah. phrase for that. We should. You should. You should sound pollution. Well, sound pollution. Yeah, but it's not just sound, yeah. right? It's also. It, it, I mean, it's, of course it's sound, but it's also the risk of something falling overboard or extra debris or extra pollutants or right. other things like that. And it's right. also just all the things that come with high traffic, okay. right? And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you're right. Well, I think it's, it's part of our journey in yeah. in, in occupying the planet Earth <laughs> and <laughs> occupying it at the level we've, we have so finally. You know, you realize it's only been in the last century that we've occupied every continent on the, on the Earth, right? Antarctica was the last one that we started to occupy 20... Four hours a day, twelve months a year, uh, and that didn't happen really until the 1950s. So we went from a small tribe of a couple of thousand people in Africa to seven to soon to be nine or ten billion, and now we occupy the whole planet. And it's our impact now on this very small planet with so many of us that we need to pay attention to that. And this concept of giving parts of the Earth a rest has only evolved in the ocean recently and the Phoenix Islands was was one of the most in, was one of the first and I think uh, remains one of the most important because of the high value of it there now what you brought to the Phoenix Islands is your research 
I love the expression, the uh, definition of science is it's just a system of rules that keeps us from lying to each other. <laughs> Another great one. Oh my God. <laughs> so well, good. It's very helpful. And because, you know, you can, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. And when we're talking about policy scale decisions that humanity makes in our, the way we behave, the way we, the way we occupy the planet, as I said earlier, and the way we take fish out of the ocean, the way we do things, that policy the rules need to be informed by facts, not by opinions. Fishing industry, uh, tourism industry, uh, recreational dive industry, you name it, all these factors want to use the ocean and want to benefit from it, want to profit from it, and I support all of them. But they need to do it in ways that are bound by under, an understanding of how the system works in research. And that's what you do, that's what you're so good at, that's the strength that you brought to the to PIPA, the Phoenix Islands Protected Area. How are you, the results of your research used and how do you want them to be used? Well, I guess first let me back up for a second and say that for as much as I've tried to bring research and science to the Phoenix Islands, they've brought just as much to me. Throughout the 10 years we've worked on this project, um, the role of science has evolved too. And I'm now the co-chief scientist yes, of the, the Phoenix Islands Protected Area. And trust. Um, trust, yep, and with Tuerka Tamari, who's the director Full of fisheries. Full disclosure, I'm the chairman of that trust. Yes, so. it's true. It's, yeah, yeah. Do we know each other? How do we know? <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, part of the science that's happened there and part of my science that's happened there has been informed by management needs, right, where people yeah. have said, we need to know more about this or what do, what do we know about this? And, and so it's stretched me too. And so I think that that has also been a real two-way give and take and conversation that has been really gratifying. I am grateful every minute for my background in honeybees and I used to work with plants and a bunch of different systems because, again, it's that breadth of thinking that, yeah. you know, has been able to, uh, you know, just help I call I call lateral, <laughs> lateral thinking. Yeah, sure. That's the way I look at Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that's been really helpful to be sort of a, a bit more of a marine yeah. biology generalist. But yeah. um, what gets me out of bed in the morning with this project is the fact that I have two little children and I think about nature all the time. You're right. I'm, I am singularly obsessed. And I, nature is so bounded. Um, in a lot of the worlds, right? You, you can look at a forest when, you know, you can take a satellite or look at Google Earth and you can see pretty clearly exactly where the boundaries of this forest are. And you can see exactly where the boundaries of this patch of, what you know, wild, desert or wildflower meadow it's or bounded. whatever. What do you mean by that? It's bounded by us? It's bounded by, by people us. or it, by it nature? It has a road. Or both? It yeah. has okay. a, you know, right. it can't, yeah. It, yeah. It, there's people everywhere, like you said. Right. And, right. Um, and nature can kind of do its thing within those bounds sometimes, depending on the scale of nature you're talking about. But mm -hmm. when you really think about what nature should be and you want to ask questions, I want to have a conversation with nature. I don't want to have a conversation with nature, mm. you know, that's completely impacted by mm. humans. And mm. so you got to go where, mm. where a place that's, where you can actually have a real conversation, where you can have a moment you know, in a quiet conversation with with wilderness. And the Phoenix Islands is, for me, yeah, like that's that. part of why I work there. And so, and why I've spent so much time and energy trying to make the science there spectacular because there are good questions to be asked and you can have a chance of a real answer. I love that. You know, that, that idea of a conversation with nature, I love it. Because I've often said that in the beginning, the Phoenix Islands taught me about what the ocean was like originally. What, in yes, a, the original exactly. state, that's the conversation we had. It said, Greg, this is what the ocean was a couple of thousand years ago. Yeah. And you've never seen it before, but here it is. Because people don't live here now, and they actually have never lived there, really. It was a, no. little, far, it was a little too far <laughs> out of the bright. The history is so interesting. Yeah, yeah even, the, even the, the, the amazing ancestors of the Micronesians and the Polynesians and the Melanesians on those canoe voyages that were the equivalent of the, of the space shuttle flights of today, back then, 
They didn't spend sure. a lot of time here. They were more attracted, let's call it the bright lights of Tahiti and Fiji and the higher islands where there were more people. So these islands and never had- a little had easier living too, God. I mean, it's hard to live out there in the scrubby. Well, in some ways it's hard. In other words, it's easier. The, um, the fishing is really good around oh, those islands. True. And I, I know from talking to my Kiribati friends that their ancestors chose these islands because of the, the high production of the ocean. For sure. And they, they said that the, uh, the islands were just a place to park their canoes at night. <laughs> 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 that they were out, out in the water during the day well, uh, as real water ocean people. And we, yeah. we'll talk about that more on another episode, maybe today. But then the Phoenix Islands started to talk to me about fishing because there was so much tuna fishing going on there and there was gillnet fishing. And I got involved with helping to alleviate some of that pressure. And that's where the protection idea came out. And what was the impact of that? And then it started to talk to me about climate change. <laughs> we started to see the effects of climate change out in an area that is about as far from the centers that create climate change as you can get. You know, the industrial centers of Europe and North America Absolutely. and Asia that, you know, push the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. The Phoenix Islands is about as far away from those centers of greenhouse gas production as you can get. So that was my conversation with the Phoenix Islands. It was, yeah. it was like primal ocean, fishing, and climate. And I think it's really today about the human dimension. I'd like you to describe, if you would please, in your own words, uh, what it's like at the Phoenix Islands, like above water and below water. You know, if you're going and you're approaching it on a ship and you just sort of see these little specks appear before you, um, they look small. Um, really nothing. Very diminutive islands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they're low profile yeah. and the maximum elevation is probably one to two meters tops. Yeah. Um, some of them have no trees on them. You'll, you'll see a cloud of seabirds above them. Um, well, they're just tops of ocean mountains, really. Really, they? that's what they are. Okay. And that's exactly it. And then yeah. you jump in the water and if you're snorkeling, right, and you're staying in the super shallows, you'll see um, like our good friend Rob likes to say, squillions of fish, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> you get to see squillions of fish around you, and um, you'll see a reef that's complicated. You know, you'll see a wave-pounded reef that is um, in, as it should be. So you'll see spaces where there's spurs and grooves, and some of them have are tucked in with tons of corals, and other spaces are so wave-pounded that they're kind of scrubby. But it gives you a sense, it calibrates our, my understanding of um, what a pretty natural reef A complicated reef, like. you mean it's got diversity, it's got different kinds of things going yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. Which you don't have in other areas because it's been it's well, been not, impacted. Yeah, you still, it's yeah. just it's different, right? Yeah. So you get yeah. to see the reef in, in it's a complicated ecosystem. You get to appreciate its complexity, its natural complexity. And then as you go deeper, if you're on scuba, um, you know, it's really neat because then you start to you know, be in that three-dimensional space where you can start to see a reef come alive with all of its trophic layers. And what yeah. I mean by that is you get to see the large predators. I mean, there's a lot of reef sharks there, and they're not aggressive, and you can watch them um, sort of prowl the top of the reef, but with all the other fish, I mean, yeah. so many fish just rise into the water column, it'll come down when the shark passes by and then rise back up, yeah. and you can start to see the the, the rhythm of the reef, which yeah. I really love to sort of just watch everybody move and see the whole system work together. And it's, it's, it's loud. If you're quiet for a minute, you could hear all the fish start to eat and munch and move and swish. And yeah. it's, I love that. And then as you go deeper, and now you need tech to do it. You can't go down yourself. You know, we've discovered what lives on some of these seamounts. How deep? Uh, the deepest we have explored in the Phoenix Islands protected area is just under 6,000 meters, which is amazing. So that's like 18,000 feet. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, roughly. <laughs> or three and a half miles. Yeah. yeah down. Exactly. Straight down. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And there's stuff That's there deep. too. That's yeah. Deep. And so as you go all the way down, you pass through all these ocean layers. Um, and at the deepest spot, you know, there was, uh, which is in a, sort of a hadal trough in the center of this protected area. Um, there's these half meter large sea cucumbers, and there's 
you know, monoplacophorans, which are really cool, sort of old and ancient species. And there's all kinds How of stuff. Oof, don't make me estimate that, Greg. I don't well, know. Yeah. <laughs> The thousands of years old, right? Yeah, dinosaur age, yeah, if not yeah. pre. But, uh, but there's coral down there. There's, there's coral down there yeah, too, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, and yeah. um, and as you, you know, one of the things that we just did actually on our most recent trip down, uh, doing a deep sea expedition, is we kind of started to put these pieces together. You know, when you when you look at the top, like I said, it, they are diminutive, or as you said. Um, and Charles Darwin was actually the first one to really describe the process of oceanic atolls, and he visited the he, Phoenix. He Islands. went to the Phoenix he Islands did. in the Beagle, didn't he? Did. He, he totally Isn't did. That incredible. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And he um described you know, how the process happens. It's these volcanic islands, these yeah. volcanoes, which then, you know, recede and you get the central shallow right, lagoon as the right. ocean recedes and you get the ring around it because you have a living coral. A living Melville coral. went there too, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Melville based part of his Moby Dick story on the Phoenix Islands, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah, okay. such a yeah. long history, yeah. right, of incredible people who've yeah. been there who've described this. But the thing about Darwin, yeah. and this Darwin. is the back key Darwin, piece, yeah. this is back to Darwin, is that yeah. he predicted that if this were true, then you'd have this calcium carbonate cap on the top of a basaltic volcanic island, that, um, and that carbonate cap would be entirely based um, on you know, the minerals deposited by calcareous organisms that are living there, namely corals, but other things. And we did this. We started, I don't remember exactly what depth we started at, but around 2,500 meters deep and went all the way up and we watched the transition from <laughs> from you, volcano you, to you saw the volcano volcanic rock cap. and you found the cap we did and oh. we found the switch and we went all the way up and then we actually took the rov and we what went, depth was the was the transition uh it's a couple hundred meters yeah down. that's what i yeah, thought yeah, yeah maybe a little just under a thousand meters and uh and then we went all the way up to 100 meters and that's the limit of what you can do in that tech but um you can watch the sun you know you can sort of it looks like the sunrise because you're cutting into the photic zone and you can just we just watch that whole transition and it's and so you asked me what it's like in the Phoenix Islands. Yeah. I, I mean, I say to you, what depth, my friend? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's amazing at yeah. all levels. And it's yeah. at every level, it just takes my breath away to see so much nature and no signs of humanity. Really, no trash, no debris, no... I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. So my first dives there, I remember what struck me is I was down at about 50 feet on scuba. And suddenly it got dark. And... In my experience, when it got dark, I thought a storm had come over. It was starting to rain above or something like that. But I looked up, and it wasn't a storm. It was a school of fish. <laughs> <laughs> and I had never seen a school of fish that were that dense. That's how they used to describe passenger pigeons, yeah. right? They yeah. were so dark that you used exactly. to, you know, Exactly. The and then you mentioned the sharks. First dive there, I remember I counted 150, 100 to 150 gray reef sharks and white tip sharks and black tip sharks. And I must admit, at that point in my diving career, I... I'm much more experienced now. I was pretty, you know, kept my wits about me. And As you should. Kept my eye on all these guys. <laughs> but by the end of the first couple of weeks, you know, we were so used to them. They were like just all around us all the time. And we'd go down at night. I remember thinking back now, you know, with your flashlight doing something, I'd be this out whoosh, by my head. And it'd be a big gray reef wait, shark. Wait, 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 wait. Can we back up? Yeah. You dove the Phoenix Islands at night? Oh, all the time. Really? Yeah. Oh, whoa. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I didn't uh, know that. You, you guys didn't do that? No. Oh, because you probably we log four or five was dives, safe, yeah, safety, during the day, safety. and then oh, no, we we, move, we transit at night. Oh, we usually so, we tried to we yeah. did we did night dives every time we could, oh, and wow. and cool. we made a transition yeah. to uh, doing them out in the outer ocean, open ocean too, because we started off doing just doing them in the lagoons. And yeah, I remember I think we only on, did uh, one at night. I remember this particular dive I'm recalling now was on Canton, just as you come out of the lagoon and you turn right. Yeah. We were down there, right. and, and we were filming a uh, nice dive. Nice, we were filming octopus and all kinds That's of things. That's a perfect spot to go. And I remember that we were so used to the sharks, I couldn't see them, but I could like feel them <laughs> as they as they whooshed by me in the middle of the night. And I was thinking, la di da di da. It didn't matter, you know. It was just we we had 
we had grown confident about. Now you shouldn't grow too confident because uh, <laughs> they are wild animals and at some point uh, you could get into a situation where they would they would get uh, a little more aggressive. And we had one of those situations at, uh, at River Waukee, the Phoenix Island itself. Yeah. There's one island called the Phoenix Island. And Rob Burrell and I were out there and we got out of the water and we both said that was one of the scariest dives we'd ever been on. You know, when a shark gets, gets aggressive, it, it, it assumes a body posture where its pectoral fins go down a little bit and its back hunches. Yeah, and all it. these sharks were doing that and they were coming over at us and threatening us and trying to make us leave. They were clearly showing a territorial thing like, this is my place, leave. And I think what it was is it was a bird island. And there was, a, there was hundreds of thousands of birds on this island. And I think they were feeding on the birds, the little baby, the, the younger oh, birds. Because it's like in uh, Midway Island, you get yeah. tiger sharks hang, come in for the albatross breeding. Sure. Because the young albatross, every, you know, one out of what, 50, 100, who knows what the number is, mm -hmm. albatross that uh, takes its first flight doesn't make it. it. It goes down to the water and the sharks eat it. I think that's what was going on in that island, and that's why they were so territorial. It was like the prime feeding spot. And, my birds, and not yours. They're my birds, not yours. Get out of here. Right. You know, we've heated our planet up, and the heat is translated from the atmosphere into the ocean, and ocean temperatures are rising. And corals have a particularly challenging time with this, coral, coral reefs. And I wondered if you could explain that to the to people, your teacher, you probably do it better than me. It's called coral bleaching, but what happens in that process and what's the significance of the Phoenix Islands in this regard? So corals are animals, let's start there. Yeah. And um, a good friend of mine likes to call them sea monsters, where he says they're animal, vegetable, and mineral all wrapped into one, yeah. right? So the animal part is the living polyp um, and the series of polyps, and then they have um, the vegetable part is in symbiosis with a, a dinoflagellate uh, that photosynthesizes, just like plants. So it's, you know, it's, it's using sunlight. That's the zooxanthellae, is Yeah, and now yeah. there was actually just a recent paper, they're being more tax, better It's like the corals garden, they have their own little garden, like they're farmers, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah sh sure. And so that's a good way to put it. And then, um, then of course, the mineral part is the calcareous skeleton that they build, which is what builds reefs, right? Mm -hmm. So they're called coral reefs because these cities, these underwater cities are built by this animal-plant relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, and what happens when corals bleach, simply put, is that the symbiotic relationship between the animal and the vegetable part breaks down, right? So the coral and its symbiont um, disassociate. And they like suck the glucose out of the, the dinoflagellate yeah, that so lives in them? Is that how it so works? So there's a really interesting relationship, nutritional relationship, it's exactly right, where you have um, both partners in this mutualism get, get something out of it. And so you end up, do ha you do have translocation of carbon across, um, and you know, and carbohydrates across um, symbiont to host, and then you have um, the host can provide a, you know a bit yeah. more of the nitrogen yeah. from the host back to the symbiont, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And you know um, what happens when this breaks down is that corals have a hard time a getting enough carbon to build their calcium carbonate skeletons, and b they're not getting enough sugar, and they have to start living on the reserves that they have. And corals, but can't they also pull things out of the water? They have a carnivorous side too, a right? A little bit, some 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 more than others. So there's okay. a, you know like. 450 some odd coral species in the world uh, and shallow, shallow reefs yeah, yeah. and they all have um, really different th I mean there's there's really quite the spectrum but uh, let me let me back up and just say this for people who are unfamiliar with corals I always like to start with plants because people kind of understand yeah. them. and corals are a lot like plants in it, some yeah. ways right they need sunlight they're sessile they're they, they're modular they hang out in one spot but plants have roots and they in roots they can store carbon they can store nutrients they can store energy and if a plant gets sheared at the surface I mean you've seen this a million times it can regrow from its roots right corals don't have that 
what you see is what you get. They have a little bit of tissue mass embedded within the calyx of the polyp inside their skeleton, but they don't have this deep root structure. And so when they bleach, when they lose this symbiosis, they have only a very little bit of energy reserved to draw from. And so when the, when the host and the symbiont dissociate, it sets a clock. They starvation, right? Starvation, exactly. And so the coral has a little bit of time, depending on whether or not it can feed a little bit heterotrophically and pull things out. It can maybe build in more of a buffer, mm -hmm. or if it has a deep-bodied polyp, it can use a little bit more of a buffer, but if it's a shallow a shallow polyp depth and it, it can't feed very well, and there's lots of corals which are like this, because uh -huh. there's, it, I mean, what they need to feed is sunlight, and that's never in short supply, so, you know, it makes sense. So um, some corals actually only rely 100% on, 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 on the sugar f that's created through photosynthesis? 100%, because 100% is like uh, Yeah, okay, mostly, but, but, but mostly. mostly. yeah. Okay, because um, I'd always gone with the 60-40% kind of rule. But there's a spectrum. Yeah, there's okay. a lot of different right. corals okay. out there. And yeah, so um, some are some can do a pretty good job of switching and starting to feed more when they're stressed from bleaching. Pulling, and some, pulling organic out yeah, of the, uh, with a little can't. tentacle, right? It's like a little feeding tentacle. But here's the other thing. The ocean isn't constant and doesn't provide a constant supply of food either. And so some in some places are naturally oligotrophic, which are nutrient poor. And many coral reefs, not all, but many of them actually are thriving in places where you don't have a whole lot of food in the water because when a, a coral is not bleached, it that provide then there's nothing to cloud the sunlight coming down and so they have better access to the sunlight, right? And so right. it it's 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 complicated and it's not. With the simple part of this is that when this relationship breaks down, corals have a very limited window of opportunity to regain their health, regain their symbionts, and keep growing. And if they, if that window of time runs out, if that clock stops, there's mortality. And it's the symbiont that doesn't like the heat, right? The corals. It's both. They're both, but yeah. But isn't the symbiont more the the, the phytoplankton, the plant that lives in the coral? That's more sensitive, to my understanding. That it gets hot and it says, "I'm out of here." and it leaves, ah, but the coral's alive for a while. You just hit one of the still really important <laughs> right. and active areas of research in oh, coral yeah. biology. So okay. just to add the, I'm sorry, I'm going to be I want to hear it. rigorous, like, uh, I want to hear it. Exacting. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of complexity here. And so there's complexity in the coral species and there's complexity in the symbiont species too. And there's a lot of different species, and a lot of different strains. Cool. And who has control over this relationship or who wears the pants oh. is, is not totally known. Well, maybe the coral says, out of, you get out of here now. Yeah, I'm it's done. Too, it's too hot for both of us. I need I need some space. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe the symbiont says, I'm leaving. And so, you know, the implication of host control or symbiont control is is not fully known, and it's certainly oh, not known on a species-by-species really, species really level. So I didn't know it's, that. That's It's one of the things that we're still trying to dial in on because you can imagine, right, a situation where a coral host really needs its symbiont, and the symbiont says, I, I, I'll do better off free living. See you later. And you can imagine a time where the host says, whoa, 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 I can barely support myself. I can't support you can't also. support you too, yeah. Out you go. And so it's... And maybe it's like a marriage that's really hot in the house and everybody's irritable. They just have to get away from each other for a while. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I don't know if I want to go to marriage. <laughs> it's not quite a marriage, but, but yeah. The, but the... Okay, so the coral has a plant that lives in it and it produces sugar from the photos, miracle of photosynthesis. It is amazing. And then they, the, the, the coral, which is an animal, uh, harvest that it absorbs it through its tissue, its yeah, cell walls, right? Exactly. And then when uh, it goes into this state of bleaching, they disassociate, and right. you just said it's for various reasons, and it looks white. It looks and that's white. Why it, and that's why and it's called bleaching, right? Yeah. It's a misnomer. It's not really bleaching. No, it's nobody poured a bucket of bleach on top of it. It just it's what it called when it, it looks white. And it's because the the, the plant is what gives the coral. It's coral, color. it's color, right? Yeah. And you have all these different colors of coral, and that's all the different colors of, of the plant that lives in the coral. It's really kind of an interesting thing. So it turns white, that's the bleaching, but it's still alive for a while. Yes. And that varies, right? Yes. Depending on 
situation. Absolutely. But you can get the, the plants can come back and repopulate the coral, right? And the color yeah. comes back or you the can. coral dies, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you connect these reefs to New York where you grew up? Or to absolutely. Uh, all right. How do you do that? How does how do why should people care? What's what's the purpose of even learning all this stuff? About Have you seen point? Finding Nemo? Yeah, I love Finding Nemo. Yeah, all drains lead to the ocean, right? It, it's a little bit yeah. different than that, but I'll start there okay. to say that first okay. of all, you know, everybody lives in a watershed, yep. and so and all watersheds <laughs> drain to the ocean, and yep. so what we do, even in the you know in coastal areas, can influence almost the whole ocean, you know, in some in some way, shape, or form. And if you don't influence it coastally, we influence it atmospherically, right? right. And so we are moving things around this planet. Things are not static, right? Everything is dynamic, and um, right. I, I think we would be fooled to think that what we do in New York has no influence on like the rest of it, the Atlantic. Of course it does. And nature is a, a whole planetary system that functions. And so for me, coral bleaching is a symptom of what's happening globally. And the Phoenix Islands are part of this story, just to bring it home here, yep. is um, because there are so few coral reefs where you can ask the million or probably billion or maybe even trillion dollar question of what do we do to buy reefs some time? And so if you were to ask this question in a coastal reef, you would have to ask this question amidst coastal runoff, amidst overfishing, amidst disease, amidst sewage, amidst, I mean, you name it, right? Like all the things. And you have to go to the places where there are no people, where it's relatively uninhabited, where it's pretty far away from coastal influences, and it only has global influence. And then you can ask the question, can we buffer against global influence? What is the true impact of ocean or global influence and mm -hmm. how do we calibrate this and so that's what we can learn from a place like the Phoenix Islands and I have to tell you everyone always wants to know the answer after I say this and yeah. the answer is 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 complex and and we're still working it out I mean what I can tell you is that in some places in the Phoenix Islands there's been mortality and then recovery that's happened really really fast and in other places recovery has been slower than I ever would have thought and that that natural complexity right mm -hmm. that conversation mm -hmm. with nature we're, we're not done having it we're still Still, yeah. we're, no, still, we're still engaged. But I want to kind of come back to you again, Randy. You, you know, you oh. a real model. <laughs> you're a real model in um, science and the world. And I saw a picture of you with your kids on your lap, and you were looking at a screen of the deep sea. Yeah. So you were in Boston, I guess, right? I was. I was in my home office. You were in your home office. And what were you doing? I was deep sea diving. Yeah. I had five screens set up in my home office. And the world is so digital now, and there's costs and benefits to that. But one of the biggest benefits in ocean exploration is that um, you don't need to be on the ship all the time, every time. I mean, in collaboration with Not like with the others, old days. Well, look, I love being on the ship, and I definitely still go to the Phoenix Islands. I was just there last yeah. year. But, um, you know, after running 14 of these expeditions in collaboration with others, um, and I have two little children. I have an almost four-year-old and an almost seven-year-old, and it's too much time to leave them for a month every single time. That would be way too much. So um, I was, uh, that particular cruise was run by NOAA's Office of Ocean Exploration and Research, OER, and they had taken the Okeanos Explorer out to the Phoenix Islands, and I was on the phone with them constantly and they set up you set up a chat screen where you can talk to the other scientists and the ROV pilots right then and there um, and then you set up a screen where you can see all the navigation functions um, so you can see exactly what the pilots see and what everyone on ship sees and then you say another screen that the science cam sees and then another screen where you can see what so the you're actually yeah, yeah. sitting in your oh, home yeah. <laughs> and you're connected live to a ship many thousands of miles away yeah, with and not only that but the ship has a vehicle a robot yeah at the end of a tether maybe yeah. three miles under the water telepresence it's That's amazing incredible so you know what's even cooler about yeah. it so all the screens are coming in and do you want to know what the delay is because you might say ah but you're not seeing it in real time there's a five second delay between 
between this, you know, what you see and, and where they are. And if that's too long, and sometimes it is when you're trying to make split second decisions, yeah. if you're really involved. It's kind of long, yeah. Yeah, you can pick up the phone and then it's real time. Um, and so, you know, they have a direct line in. And so, um, and this isn't just for me. This is one of these things where um, expert level, the whole model of ocean exploration for NOAA in particular is really brilliant because they um, will enlist the help of 20 to 30 scientists around the globe with various expertise because I can talk about corals competently and the Phoenix Islands competently, but if you asked me about, oh, I don't know, acorn worms, I'd be a little out of my depth. And <laughs> so, you know, you get different people's oh, yeah. expertise. and. Um, much more efficient. And they come together and everyone's on the chat room together and everybody's watching and they touch in for different parts and you can kind of phone a friend when you're in trouble and just say, ah, I don't know what this is, but I isn't a kinoderm expert yeah. at the Smithsonian. Let me call yeah. him. Because I, I remember when we first it's started amazing. working together on this and you were setting up some expeditions. This one I was much more directly involved. Mm -hmm. we've, we've sort of, in, we've evolved in different ways now, but I remember there was one expedition and like it was going along, planning, it was all happening. And then one day you said to me that you weren't actually going on the trip. <laughs> and I was like, what? You know, you said, don't worry, I don't have to go because I da 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 and I you you gave me confidence. And the reason I was I even asked that is I come from the old school, right? Yeah. When I started going to sea, we would go out for months at a time. Yeah. And we didn't have internet. We had It's my uh, favorite way to travel, we don't didn't get me have, wrong. <laughs> uh, we really didn't have communication. There yeah. there were sh there were shortwave radios on the boat that they would use for emergencies and for for business traffic, but we would go for, for months without having any contact with, uh, with the land and just doing our science and our research. And we'd usually write our papers on the way back in. Yeah, totally. We'd type, our, paper, type our papers yep. on the way back in. And then we'd submit the papers for publication, meet with some students, and then you know a month later, you'd head out again. And uh, yeah. it's all changed. So let me let me let me be really clear on this because yeah. I think this is a really important point. So first of all, I, I have two children, <laughs> yeah. and um, and like we like I just said, that's part of it. But I also really really think that the the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle. I've been on these expeditions. I've been to the Phoenix Islands, and without the context of being there and seeing it with my own eyes and swimming in the water and getting a sense for oh this is over here, and when you round this corner you see this because you need to see it to sort of integrate your, and spatially sort of calibrate where you are. That has been. I can't imagine having worked in a place I've never been, right? You need that sort of um, gestalt, yeah, yeah, yeah gestalt. right? The context for it. But once you have it, and you can't never go again, right? You need to kind of touch in on that and recalibrate your understanding every so often. But, but I'm also, I mean, I had babies while I've been working on this project. I was pregnant, I had newborns, and I wasn't gonna stop working in this place that I love so much just because I was pregnant and so having these other No, I admired options, you for how you handled that. Oh God, you know, it was complicated, but um, I remember sitting in, you pulled I, it my off. kids were born early, I remember being in labor and being like, okay, ship, I'm gonna talk to you in a few hours. I have to have a baby now. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you have the baby now. Right. <laughs> but uh, really, but, um, but you know, it's, uh, I, I think that the, the sweet spot has to be in the middle. I think you can't, doing just telepresence, if you're, if you're doing it and you're really running a project, I, you can't just, do it remotely and if you and you can't always be there either and so for me at least in this particular project in this context the, it's been somewhere in the middle and I would my favorite way to travel is the way that you have right is to go there and turn off everything else and just immerse yourself right I'm going spending all this time and money to have a conversation with nature I want to have it I don't want to talk to everybody else at home but I also yeah. wanted to have babies and yeah. I am really grateful that the world has changed enough to allow both what is your favorite ocean animal it changes by the second. That's okay. Well, one of them. <laughs> I know. Me too. I've got. You're I've right, got several, but just one of them. Ah, uh, let's see. What shall I pick today? I am gonna go with. Da da da. Aridogorgia corals. 
I have oh, to pick something esoteric. Yeah, they yeah. are. I'm gonna pick something esoteric okay. and a little weird. That's okay, right. these yeah. are super cool. They look yeah. like a curlicue. Oh, and they they are. Did you see them on the deep sea coral. Night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a deep sea coral, and it 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 just whirls around, and it just looks like something that Dr. Seuss would have created, right? It just doesn't look real, and yet it is, and it's you know full of thousands of mouths, and they've been a lot. They can live for thousands of years, and I just I don't know the fact that this exists, this improbable. Beautiful, improbable. I like that. You know, completely yeah. Seussian <laughs> thing yeah. exists, and it exists in the place where we work. And actually, it's a global genus. You know, it's around everywhere. Family, at least, it's around everywhere. Um, I just, I don't know. I'm going to call it today. It's my favorite today. Okay, got <laughs> I it. I love it. What's got yours? It. Got it. My mine is starfish, echinoderms in general. Really? Yeah. Why? Because they're so ancient, and they are linked to the invertebrate world. It's it's yeah. it's where we think for the vertebrates yeah. struck out from with the urochordates and all those guys. Sure. It's sort of an evolutionary reason for it, and and I just like them. They're just kind of they're cool. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. For all the, in all their glorious forms and, and whatnot. And um, What about um, the most interesting dive you've done, or one of the most interesting dives? It doesn't have to be in the Phoenix Islands. It could be anywhere. But wait, wait, what do you want? Do you want like the the action, or it's do up you want to you. the whichever way? You can go action, or you can go animals. You can go either way. Uh. Whatever. I'm gonna go animals. All right. So I um I jumped in the water and I for the first time and Raja Ampat's spectacular because it's one of the centers of biodiversity of our planet, if not like the center of marine biodiversity in our planet for sh shallow reefs. And uh, I'm a pretty good coral biologist and I I really didn't know everything that <laughs> I had to go back to the books and study. So I was a kid in the candy store, totally excited about yeah. it. And um, I heads deep in the corals and I'm counting everything and trying to ID everything and you know taking careful measurements. And I come back up and everyone's like, "Did you see the whale?" <laughs> no, <laughs> not yeah. even once. And I was like, I, I was trying to think back. I don't even remember something feeling like a cloud overhead, and right? I totally missed the whale. All right, so then it's a Rajampat. It's a Rajampat. Huh. And then uh, yeah, yeah. And then the next day, somebody's like, "Did there. you see the Wobegong shark?" I'm like. Yeah, I think I saw that one. It was right near a coral. And then it's like, and did you see the pod of dolphins? It was like, no. And that was the day that I decided to start wearing a GoPro on my back. <laughs> oh, you wear a GoPro? Oh, is that right? So it looks backwards? So yeah, well, yeah. So then I can go back later and see what I missed. And so, what a brilliant idea. Thank you. Um, <laughs> to do that. Because I had always in the coral. And so yeah, yeah. it's not an interesting dive because it was anything spectacular that I saw. It was spectacular for what I didn't see. And it's just a reminder to myself to like keep looking around. And that every time you think you, you know, you've seen everything on a dive, there's all this stuff you didn't see. I just, I don't know. That's it's, a good one. Yeah. I need a 360 view and I don't have it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Is there anything left that you'd like to say? I mean, you could say something to the listeners about what they can do, where they can go or not, or anything that I've, that's come to your mind where you just yeah. didn't get a chance to say it you'd like to. Thank you. Yeah. That's a nice opportunity. Yeah, yeah there's two things, actually. One is I'd really like to, you know, for all of the, the fun and the hard work and commitment that you and I and many others have put towards the Phoenix Islands, I really just want to take one minute to really put the credit where credit's due and mm. to say that, you know, and I think we've mentioned this before, but mm. really drive it home that the mm. Republic of Kiribati oh, yeah. yeah. deserves this incredible credit for yeah thinking about this for allowing an international group of scientists to work in partnership with them because it's, you know the phrase, a rising tide floats all boats? Yep, yep. You know, this really has yep. worked together in yep. a genuine two-way partnership really good, where really we've point. worked together. And I am grateful for the opportunity to work in this Most place with these this people. Most people haven't heard of this, people. Know, heard yeah. of this country either, but it's an extraordinary country. It's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. And to work in a place where it's, we really, I mean, I feel like the international scientists bring something to the table 
and the country brings something to the table mm -hmm. and together mm -hmm. we make each other stronger and I am just it's been the honor of my life to work with these amazing people and in this incredible place and I just want to make Thank sure you. that they're I'm glad you did yeah and let's really point out what this is we, we call it Kiribati but it's spelled K-I-R-I-B-A-T-I. -I -I. Yeah, Kiribati. Kiribati. It looks like Kiribati, but it's pronounced Kiribati. It's an island nation in the Central Pacific. Yeah. Uh, it has an enormous ocean area. It controls an area that's uh, three million square kilometers. It's like three, like two-thirds the size of the continental United States. They're, yeah. a, they're an ocean state. They have 32, uh, 33 islands. Yeah. Mostly ocean, though, is their territory, and they've been there for many thousands of years and uh, are amazing uh, ocean people and they've, uh, they've brought the Phoenix Islands as a, as a gift to the world. So thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. You said there were two things? Or? Yeah, so that's the first. And the yeah. second thing is I just want to say that I, um, you know, it's, it's, this, it's a funny thing to talk to an old friend, you know, and do it in a podcast yeah. format. Yeah. But I, I just, I, I hope that science it stays like this, stays fun and, you know, just and, and real and isn't afraid to engage in some yeah. of the passion of the issues and I just think it's you know there might be some future scientists out there listening these days and you know that the world has changed from sort of always being um, you know just not engaging with the public and now there's a lot of public engagement and I, I really like that piece too and so I wanted to say just thank you for the invitation oh, old yeah. friend sure, and it's old nice friend, to yeah. do this well Randy thank you so much I mean it's great pleasure to see you today as always but thank you for uh, enlightening me and enlightening our audience and uh and as we uh, go through our scuba tank of life, you know, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm a little further into my tank than you are. And uh, we've taken the boat out today and we come back to shore and thrown the lines on. And, uh, and I look forward to, to our next voyage together. Thank you. Back in safe harbor. Yeah, Thanks, back Greg. in safe really harbor. Really <laughs> <laughs> so, Randy, we just finished the podcast and one of the producers here in the room <laughs> asked another question. They wanted you to describe what's it like, the challenges, the opportunity, however you want to describe it, of being a woman in science. And you and I both said we were trying to get at that indirectly by example, but we want it straight out. So if you could just give it to us because you're the authority. What's it like to be a man in science? Has uh, anybody ever asked you that question? No. Right. I would say that the for the first time in history, it feels pretty it feels pretty easy um, because the world is kind to women in terms of enabling tele telepresence, but also I'm not the only woman on a ship anymore. I mean, right. there are lots of expeditions when I started this where I would be the only woman in the room. Right. And it's not true anymore. There's a lot a lot more gender equality out there. And so I think that um, there are times and places where it's still a real challenge. I've been on an expedition in Saudi Arabia as a Jewish woman. And so oh, <laughs> that's a complicated yeah, one. Yeah. But it works, right? There are times and places where it can still be a challenge. But even Saudi Arabia is changing. And um, it's be easier and better now than it's ever been before. And Good. so I'm hoping that more women will start asking the question, what's it like to be a man in science? <laughs> <laughs> Easy. <laughs> <laughs> it should be getting harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good, yeah, easy, but getting harder because of all these women that are now. <laughs> you don't think you're allowed to say that. No, no. All right. All right.